This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Tracy Leeds Kaplan, the founder of Small But Mighty Media and the executive producer of The 10 News. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm so looking forward to having you here. I I just mentioned before we started the show that uh, I've been really fixated lately on an old ad from a 1919 edition of a, a no longer existing magazine called Farm and Fireside. That, that was called, I am the pony king of America. I am giving away ponies. And I really, really just wish we could go back to advertising like that in this country. I kind of want a pony now. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was so, so beautifully done, too. It was just like really capitalized on. It felt like someone took seriously. You know how some diners will have like a jokey sign that's like unattended children will be given free espresso and a puppy. Right, right. It, it felt like that, but like utterly sincere. And by someone who is like, I will do this. Everyone deserves a pony. Do not let anyone tell you this is impossible. I will make it happen. Yeah, I think we all deserve a pony. We also um, all deserve the puppy and the espresso too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just like, just the idea that you could like write to a magazine and for like a certain amount of money, you could just let it be known. I'm called the Pony King of America because I've given away so many Shetland ponies to boys and girls. I've already given away more than 500 ponies and I want to give away more. Um, and I don't know why, but I feel like that's the attitude I want to try to take into our questions today is just the attitude of a man who's already known as the Pony King of America, has Great. a lot of ponies to give away and is ready to start doing it. So I don't know if that feels like an appropriate uh, attitude for you, but that's what I'm going to be starting with. I love it. I'm just trying to think now what the TikTok hashtag would be. Hashtag Pony King. Hashtag I need a pony. I think this could have legs. I, I think it absolutely could. And now I actually feel bad because our sort of first question is sort of fraught and a pony wouldn't help the situation at all. So I will uh, try to switch gears and, and just get into our first question, the subject of which is worry warrior. A friend of mine, Rich, moved to another city with his new partner, Carla, in 2019. I have since moved to a different country, so we haven't seen each other since before the pandemic. Rich is in his early 40s while I'm in my early 30s. I know him as a kind, shy, slightly anxious person. 
In the past few months, Carla, who I've never met, has posted about Rich going missing three times on Instagram. It goes like this. Rich will leave the house without his phone after an argument. After a few hours, Carla will post a call for help in classic missing person report style, describing what he is wearing, where he might be, when he was last seen, etc. And dozens of our friends will repost it asking for help finding Rich. Each time he has been, quote, found safe before the next morning. It seems like he's having a hard time, possibly dealing with mental health issues, and I really feel for him. I've called him twice since this pattern started, and both times Carla has answered the phone and said he doesn't want to talk. I've stopped calling to respect this. He's off social media, and another friend says he hasn't responded to emails. He still doesn't have many friends in his new city, but a mutual friend who lives there says she hasn't seen him for many months. I have so many qualms and questions that I hope you can help me parse. The Instagram posting seems so public and like it would be a huge added stressor for Rich, who's shy and private. I worry that this is not the best way to deal with things. Is there a better way to find a person who has been missing for a few hours? Is there anything I can do that is both respectful but also in my friend's best interests? This might be off base, but I have a nagging concern about abuse or control on Carla's part. I'm trying to sort out this out from Rich's right to deal with his problems privately and have a health advocate, and that this must be hard and stressful for Carla too. This one is so complicated. I I I, I think I share the letter writer's sense of there's a question about Carla here, in that. I don't think the letter writer is like unduly suspicious or paranoid for worrying that this could be part of a really controlling pattern. I also don't feel so confident that there's like a smoking gun that I want to definitively say like, yes, Carla's the problem. Try to, you know, intervene in some way. So much as just, I I think that's a reasonable concern to have here. Part of what makes this situation so distressing, worrying is just there could be so many possible explanations for why this is going on. I don't want to try to cut any of those possibilities off. Did you have a strong sense when you read this of what you thought might be useful or whether or not you thought you could probably rule this or that out? You know, I had the same thinking of just, it raised more questions for me of just what's going on with Carla? Does she regularly post things on Instagram that are kind of looking, you know, cries for help in other other ways? Um, and how much does this does this writer know Carla? Because mm-hmm. I think that's the that seems to be the missing piece for me is no one really knows what goes on between two couples, right? You you mm-hmm. think you know, you think you see, you think you see the Instagram posts, but certainly not knowing what their relationship is like just leaves a lot of open questions here. Um, obviously, the the person cares a lot and is worried about Rich and what's going on with him. Yeah. And I think, again, there's a shared possible sense of it's possible that Carla has a weird controlling response to Rich seemingly just needing a few hours to cool off after a fight. It's also possible there's more going on that the letter writer and and therefore we don't know about. And so I I guess I just want to say, again, it's possible that he is behaving really abruptly or trying to incite fear and uncertainty in the way that he's disappearing. Or it could be that she's reading way too much into just like, I'm going for a drive and I'm not going to take my phone with me. I don't I don't want to say definitively, I feel like I know the right call there. So then there's just the sort of question of, how do I try to get a little bit more information? Maybe I won't be able to solve the whole puzzle, but I'd like to get a stronger sense of maybe where Carla's at. So a, a couple of thoughts had occurred to me. 
One was, since you're in another country, letter writer, your your movements are going to be fairly limited for for sort of obvious reasons. So I think one possible first move would be to talk to whatever friends of yours that do live in Rich's city and just say, I don't know if you guys are concerned about this as well, but I am too. I haven't been able to get a hold of Rich. I'm concerned about this pattern of disappearances, either because it means like something's really not well with him or because I'm a little nervous that Carla is like trying to control his every move. And so I'm just wondering if any of you would be able or willing to go by and see if you can talk to him in person, which again, I realize that's a lot to ask of somebody else. They might not be able to get the information they're hoping for, but I think you would you'd feel a little bit better knowing at least somebody tried to stop by and say, how are you? Can we talk? Are you doing all right? I'm not going to like force my way in, but I, I just want to physically check in. Does that seem like a reasonable possible next move to you? Absolutely. And and also, too, if there's anyone who is a little closer to Carla, because this could all be Carla struggling with how to deal with Rich's behavior and maybe a friend coming by, taking her out for coffee, sitting her down and saying, hey, you're not alone. Let us help you. That that could be kind of the key to unlocking, you know, where she's feeling like she's dealing with this all on her own. Right. Right. And and I wondered, too, whether it might be possible to, at some point in the near future, try calling again. And if Carla answers and she says, Rich doesn't want to talk, you could say, I understand. Are you available to talk? Because I, I just love to hear a little bit more about how you two are doing. I, I know we haven't met, but I, I care about Rich's well-being and I just want to know if you're doing okay. Again, you can't, obviously, if she just is really curt or short on the phone or hangs up, you can't force it. And I wouldn't immediately open with, I find you suspicious just because I, I don't think that would be likely to get you what you want. But um, just seeing if she's open to a quick chat and you in- kind of introducing yourself and asking if there's any way you could be helpful, even if it's from a distance or again, I don't think that's likely to go great. I don't think she's likely to immediately unburden herself on you, but it's better than nothing. And I think it's worth trying. I say that though. And I also feel like this is the part that I do think gives me the most pause just because if Rich really didn't want to talk to the letter writer, I don't know that he would be handing his phone over to his girlfriend and saying, please tell this person I don't want to talk to them. Maybe it's possible. I don't want to like rule it out, but that that is the part that feels, to me, it shades more into that seems likelier that it's a controlling move on her part than it is, hey, I can't deal with telling my friend I don't want to talk. Will you please answer the phone for me? Right, right. Especially, it's just, I mean, we don't know if it's been a bunch of calls. It sounds like it's just been one or two calls. And so that's a little strange, right? That both times the phone would be handed over and say, you know, deal with this for me. Yeah. And so again, I think part of why I wanted to suggest having somebody come by in person, it might be a little bit more difficult for her to sort of like block things in the same way in person. Uh, But I also don't want to like promise too much or say like, yes, if someone stops by there in person, they'll definitely be able to talk to Rich. Definitely everything will go really well. Um, And I'm only advising sort of opening with like friendly concern with Carla as a strategy. It may be that in that conversation, you get more information and you decide, I'm actually concerned about the way Carla treats Rich. I think this might be abusive and controlling. And I now need to have a different conversation with some of our other mutual friends to figure out what, if anything, we can try to do. Because again, like when it comes to something like if we collectively wanted to try to call in a wellness check, you know, what would need to be happening in order for that to be justified? And 
the the barrier for that is pretty high, uh, usually for pretty good reasons. But I, I think this is that sort of tricky middle ground of something's going on. I wish I knew more. I don't think it's yet risen to the level where we can just like call up a, a non-emergency line and get like the state to intervene um, because right, right. everyone here is an adult and you're allowed to ignore your friends or you're allowed to be weird on Instagram before the state will say we're going to stop you. But that, that that makes it difficult. It's really difficult to make that kind of judgment, especially from a distance. But I also I share the letter writer's sense of it's really weird to post a missing person's report on Instagram three times in a row. It's really weird to do it. It sounds like she's revealed in the posts, we had an argument and he left. It really sounds like occasionally they fight and he wants to go decompress for a little while afterwards. He's not actively going missing in the sense of didn't show up for work or is gone for days and days. So it feels like likely here that she's seriously misinterpreting just what it means to be in a fight. But again, I don't know any of that really definitively. I just, I agree. That's really weird. If that was happening to a friend of mine, I would be really confused. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and what does the family say? Like that would, that'd be the, my other question for the uh, letter writer is just whether or not there's contact with Rich's family to see, you know, is he still in touch with his family? Is it, you know, maybe something happened you know, you just never know, you know, maybe something happened where there's like a jealousy situation with the letter writer um, and Carla. So I think also kind of checking with the family to see what's going on there. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a, both a really good potential place to go. And also I would encourage the letter writer to use, you know, your own best judgment if you know Rich is not close with his family um, or if you have any reason to think that they themselves are really overbearing or might like misuse information about his personal life in order to kind of like write in and like try to take over obviously don't proceed at that point but i do think this is a situation where checking in with a couple of other friends is a good one and would not be like gossiping or trying to instigate something unnecessarily dramatic i do think and and again to start with I think it's important to be careful when you talk about something like this because it can feel like you can start talking about with friends and then once you all agree, this is really weird, you can kind of whip each other up into a bit of a lather of like imagining how bad it could possibly be. And I don't say any of that to say I'm sure it's all fine, just that you do want to proceed with caution here because there are certainly flags for worse behavior. But until you know something or until you have further evidence, I think it's really good to just stick to what do we know? And what are we hoping to get, which is a little bit more information, the opportunity to hopefully try to talk to Rich if possible, even if it's just so that he says directly, I'm just going through it, please leave me alone, then I could respect that and back off. But I would love to just hear it from him and not his partner. Again, I can't promise you that you're going to get that, but I think that's a reasonable goal to kind of go after. And I think it would be reasonable to talk to other friends who are probably also concerned. And just just start with that, right? It's just we're concerned. This is new. This is concerning. Not, hey, Carla, we 100% know that you're a bad person and you're trying to hurt Rich and we want to come and like stop you. But other than that, I I don't know that I have a lot of other thoughts. I certainly would welcome if anybody listening um, has more expertise in something like this or feels like, no, this is definitely a red flag. And I would encourage you not to connect with Carla directly. Let us know um, if you have any thoughts. But I think other than that, you've tried to get in touch. You've tried to express care. Um, that's a good thing. And, and just try to stay open if possible. Um, and I hope I hope things get better. I really do. That's just really sad. And especially if you've both moved recently, like that's tough. 
Yeah. And I hope Rich knows what a good friend this person is for Kara. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes maybe the best case scenario is I did my best trying to get in touch. I couldn't get it, but I'm going to just like emotionally leave a door open in my heart for someone to try to reconnect later and hope for the best and, and let go of the outcomes. Um, sometimes that's the best that you can do. I think uh, we can take a minute and maybe if you're up for it, read an update from a, a recent letter writer, which is very exciting because I'm always asking for them and I don't always get them. Great. Let's do it. Amazing. So this is a follow up from the person who wrote the letter, Need My Social Sea Legs. Um, and they say, thank you for taking my letter on. I cried quite a bit hearing your responses. Sometimes I think all I need in life is a reminder that I'm just trying to live well and I'm not a socially malfunctioning robot better off glitching out alone. I think either a couple of sentences got cut from my original admittedly quite long letter, or I might have accidentally cut them myself before sending it. I remember writing a more succinct version of this, but to clarify the phrase cause more pain, I've had two queer friends in the past. One was a close friend that my straight friends stopped getting along with and who I lost touch with after they moved away. I regret not speaking up and questioning my straight friend's motivation for disliking them. Looking back, I can pinpoint, among other things, homophobic and transphobic attitudes that I didn't pick up on at the time and that contributed to that rift. Another friend slash acquaintance was a coworker who was essentially run out of our retail job because of a transphobic manager, and I really regret not stepping up and defending her more. I know that my passivity contributed to both of those friends having a very hard time. These are the failures that I sometimes feel should bar me from queer friendships and which had partially motivated myself in post-isolation. I don't know if that information substantially changes your read on the letter as a whole. Even so, there's no way to go but forward, and it's unlikely that I can shame myself into being a better person. I want to be good to queer people all my life, and I'm reassured by your answers that I can do so, starting with my new friend. I've also had a conversation about these quote-unquote failures with my father, who's been sober for decades and went through a process of admitting wrongdoing and making amends and coming back from periods of great personal shame with all these perspectives in my pocket. I will try my best to put down self-loathing and learn from the past to make my present a little more positive and a lot more queer. This was... Truly lovely. And, and, you know, letter writer, I will refrain from giving you a whole bundle of additional advice, but I will just say having this background information does not change my answer at all. Um, I can both really understand in retrospect, deeply wishing you'd done more to defend someone um, and also saying none of that bars you from coming out now or from making new queer friends now or feels like, wow, 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 this is like really, really awful stuff. So I just, um, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for the update. Yes, you still deserve uh, to, you know, be out and have queer people in your life. And I just wish you nothing but the best. And it sounds like you've got a pretty good perspective. So um, um, just thank you so much for writing in. I realize, uh, of course, that's not really a conversation that you were there for the first time around. <laughs> so there's not too much for the two of us to discuss. But um, I do feel like a sort of recurring theme in, in today's show, at least, is just this sort of question of on what basis can I sort of like found my actions? Like, what justification do I need to do what I hope is the next right thing? And, and I think that can come up for so many different people in so many different contexts and this sort of fear of, if I don't know exactly my motivations or the excuse or the justification I would give, like a hall monitor who caught me, I'm afraid I'm not allowed to like proceed into the future. And I think that can be really difficult for a lot of people. It's also hard to discern sometimes between your motivation and what you're doing because other people are telling you to do it. 
Mm. And I think that's that's what was very touching about that letter. It's just, you know, that person really seeking out kind of a better understanding of their own self and why they're choosing to do something. I, I just, you know, I feel like that's something that we could all kind of calm the noise sometimes mm-hmm. around us and and ask ourselves, like, what do I really feel here versus what I'm seeing on social or what I'm hearing from other people? You know, you said earlier about kind of the, the concerns sometimes when you're talking about something with friends and you get yourselves all like riled up about something and and you could be completely off base. And so really just taking that that pause. I'm trying to do that a lot more in my life right now is like, take some pauses. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's genuinely challenging. And I think that came up for me because I think I have a bad habit on that front. If I have enough grounds to be concerned or suspicious, especially if I'm talking with one or two other people who agree with my leanings, I will take that and I will just like, I round everything up and I go from, I have some concerns and my next move is to learn more into, I know exactly what's going on and I am now entitled to act as sheriff. And that's a really bad habit especially because often I'm not right in the ways that I think I am. But even in the situations where I am right, it's not, I I take that as justification to round things up Mm -hmm. and to say Mm -hmm. and act with more certainty than I really have. Um, And it's just, it's never led me in a great direction. And I really hate that I have to get better at it. (laughs) I just, it's really tough. I I really share your sense of seeking out more pauses because I just almost always feel justified when I act. And so one of the things that's challenging for me is I have to try to find better ways of checking in with others, with myself, with reality around me, because I will always think, yeah, I'm doing something reasonable right now. It's a little bit like, you know, almost everyone who drives has a problem with road rage because everybody feels like I'm the one person out here driving reasonably and everyone else is a maniac and we can't all be right. But it is truly hard, like, to think about how will I try to assess my priors, um, without totally losing my sense of scale. And I don't know that I have a great answer. If you have anything that's helped you find additional pauses, especially in in moments of conflict, uh, I would really welcome hearing about them right now. Yeah, I used to be super reactionary. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's because now now I create a, a news show for kids. So I always have to be, now when I'm consuming the news or headlines, like I, like my brain is now trained to be like, what is this really saying? And what is it not saying? Mm. Um, so if anyone wants to, you know, join me in being a 10 news producer, that's, that's a good <laughs> training right there. But um, I think it's also, you know, it's interesting having kids has changed that a lot for me because when I used to be so reactionary and I would see this look on my kids' faces, like that just made me be like, whoa, okay, I need to take a step back here. Like I'm getting worked up about something that in the grand scheme of things is just not worth getting worked up for. So I think sometimes just like having that mirror for ourselves, and I know it's not only from, you know, a child, but like just like looking at your friend's reactions or, you know, a partner in your life, or even just like, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror sometimes when you realize like, wow, I just have this like really angry face on. Why do I, why am I feeling this way? Um, I think that's really helped a lot for me is having that, that reflection and just realizing, wow, that's not, that's not how I want to be right now. Yeah. I'm curious. I imagine both uh, having children and also like professionally creating literal discourse and copy for children. Um, Has that like changed the way that you talk with other people or the way that you think about interacting with other people tremendously? I would imagine that it would, but I don't, I don't know. So I'm asking rather than making an assumption and rounding up. 
<laughs> no, it does. It does. I mean, I yeah, I live in San Francisco, so I definitely live in a bubble. And just recently, actually, had a moment where had a pretty rough confrontation with someone, you know, up in in the Tahoe area that really threw me. Mm. Um, and it was just you know, kind of disagreements about COVID and and the country's response. And it was, mm. you know, I was going to a yoga class. It was definitely not the conversation I was expecting to have. And I could feel myself getting worked up. And I just kind of took a deep breath and just thought about like, okay, how can I diffuse this rather than I think in the past, I would have just like kept going and kept like, you know, stating, stating what I knew and pushing the conversation. But instead I I went to a place of like, let me just settle on like the facts that, that I know Mm -hmm. and think about how to diffuse this. So I think, I think having children, having just being in a place where I'm constantly thinking about the the missing context behind headlines has put me much more into a like, what are the facts? How can I diffuse and, you know, just kind of get to some commonality with someone that I'm talking to rather than trying to win? Like, I feel like I used to always be like, you know, maybe it's a third child syndrome, but like, I used to always try to be like, I have to win this argument. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, a win is if we kind of both walk away thinking a little bit more about what the other person said. Yes. Yeah. Or just like, I, I, I've i got to have a sense of scale of like winning at what cost, because otherwise, if my goal is just I've got to win, I will incur any loss and be like, it's worth it as long as I win. And that's that's what the term Pyrrhic victory is for. Um, and so I think that's a really, really useful uh, metric. And congratulations on not escalating. That can be really hard to do sometimes. I may not always do with my siblings. I'll be honest about that one. <laughs> Listen, very same. Uh, famously, I do not talk to my siblings at all. So uh, I have lots to still, uh, you know, learn on the pausing front. But um, uh, I, I think that's a useful place for us to go into our last letter. Um, the subject here is amiable distance. My sister and I grew up in an abusive household. My sister went abroad to Europe for college and then retreated into denial. After our parents died, I had to take in my traumatized younger brother for the year and a half it took for his visa to process before he could go live with my more settled sister. She flew in to help for some pivotal moments, which I appreciate, but that's not my problem. My problem is my aunt, whom I love deeply. She's been a real parental figure to me and is, quote, so proud of my sister and I for having a close relationship after all we've been through. But we're not close. We went through a lot together, but I've processed it and she seems to have repressed it. Most of our conversations are surface level at best as a result. I love her, but on several occasions I've referenced something traumatic and she's immediately downplayed it with a milder, more sanitized version. I've spent years going over this in therapy And after years of trying to talk to my sister about how this hurt me, I gave up. I mean that positively. Our relationship has become so much less stressful after putting my standards on the floor. I don't have to be hurt when she says that our childhood wasn't that bad or sanitizes how our father hurt other people or even fails to include me during pivotal events in our brother's life. I just expect about two to three calls a year and that's fine. However, whenever I mention this to my aunt, She insists that we're close. I know she's coming from a place of love for both my sister and me, and she wants this for us, but it brings up old pain every time she does it. Is there any way to firmly explain this to her and have it stick? Now, you mentioned you were the third child, so I don't know if you have any general thoughts about either dealing with siblings or dealing with 
other relatives ideas about your relationship with your siblings, but any third child thoughts you have here would be really welcome. Yeah, this one really spoke to me because uh, my sister and I did not have a good relationship growing up, um, and now we're very close. Hmm. It really took for kind of both of us to be not living together and and becoming our own people to be able to find a relationship together. So that that really spoke to me. And, you know, I just, I do think I would question here, especially if there was the abusive household growing up, like what potentially happened between the aunt and, you know, if it's her sister, like this is the part we don't know, but like the aunt's definition of close could be a different definition than this writer's definition of close. So there there could also be some kind of denial going on with the aunt from her own growing up with, you know, if it's the person's mother or brother um, that she's not ready to face. And so those are kind of the things that came up for me of just trying to understand, like, you know, the aunt could be seeing something that she just is what she can see. And, and maybe it's not right to push her more for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it really felt to me like in some ways, I think one potential answer is similar to the decision you made about your sister to accept this as a limitation on your aunt's part is one option. But I could also imagine ways in which it would feel like, man, it took me so much work to be just okay with the fact that my sister really can't acknowledge the reality of our childhood, which is painful. And like, I just can do that. But now someone like added a little twig on top of this big pile. And now it's like, this is the literal straw that will break the camel's back. It's just like, if I hear my aunt call us close when I know how hard I've had to work for things to just be amicable, I feel totally crazy and I feel pain and I feel hurt and I feel overlooked and I feel like I'm once again being forced into a particular like emotional mode because of other people's expectations and like this family is just incapable of honesty. So I really both I think relate to I I think it would be okay and understandable if the letter writer eventually just decided you know what for whatever reason it's important for my aunt to think of us as close and I don't have to manage that for her. I didn't give her that idea. I'm not going around telling everyone my sister's my best friend, but I'm going to stop arguing with her about it and just say like, that's nice. Um, that would be totally understandable. If the idea of saying that's nice feels totally inauthentic and painful and you don't want to do that, you certainly don't have to. And I think it would be fine to just say something like, I'd say we're friendly, but not close. In a way that like, makes it clear you're not trying to have a fight with her or you're not trying to like give her a lot of information about how you see the relationship, but sort of blandly disagreeing the way you would if somebody else said like, oh, it's a nice day out and you thought it was kind of muggy. You'd just be like, oh, I think it's kind of muggy, but you wouldn't necessarily get invested in a, in a debate where you would at the end of it ultimately have to decide to share the same view of the day. Does that seem possible to you? Does that seem like a reasonable potential way of responding? I like that because I think also too, it's clear that this writer has a close uh, has a good relationship. It shouldn't use the word close, I guess, because um, we don't know with, with her aunt. But it, it seems that that way. You know, she says she she loves her deeply, and I'd be worried that if you know if she pushed too far, if there would be a negative impact on her relationship with her aunt. You know, and so just thinking about wanting this writer to still have that same deep relationship um, and not wanting to jeopardize that, it may be better for her to just keep it casual, keep it, like you said, I think that's a great way to to answer it. And I think if it is really nagging at her, really questioning what 
what is it going to do for you to say something? Mm-hmm. Like, are you saying it because you need to say it? Or are you saying it because you think change is going to happen? I, I've certainly had this times with my with my own parents and that relationship where I've realized that I'm responding to something or I'm saying something and it's just for me. It's mm-hmm. not, it's it's not going to change them. I've had to come to terms with that. Um, and so I had to deal with the consequences of me saying something um and and know that it was it was really just to satisfy my own desire that that I couldn't not say something. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think to that point, um, it's also I, I really understand this letter writer's feelings. Nothing about this seems unreasonable to me. It's it's also just possible that for your aunts, two things. One is the standard for the rest of the family is so low that she genuinely feels like that is closeness. Two to three amicable phone calls a year, uh, a fundamental disagreement about how your childhood was, uh, but also like at least some shared ability to co-parent your brother or at least hand off the parenting of your brother. Like, I can see why from her perspective, given that she was either siblings with your father or your mother, uh, this might look amazing. This might genuinely be, wow, this is like one of the best working relationships in our family, which is not to say you then shouldn't have any feelings about it, just to, it's possible that her idea of close for the two of you is, is informed by the intense abusiveness of the rest of the family. And that doesn't mean, again, that you have to like it or that you have to share her definition. You can just kind of say like, well, that's her perspective and I get where she's coming from. Um, Again, if that just makes you feel totally nuts and like, no, I can't handle it. This just really is the straw that's breaking the camel's back. It's just this word. I need her not to use this word. That would make sense to me too. And and I think you could just maybe even say that to her. Like, I, I really appreciate that you are moved by the fact that we've been able to get along um, and that we generally are able to like help each other out in sort of crucial moments. And I can also imagine she just wants to think of somebody else in the family as being close. Like it's sad to think of your family as this like irredeemable mess of people who have no business dealing with each other. That's painful. And so this might also be sort of face saving for her of like, I need to put a positive spin on this relationship because neither of them killed anybody. And that's, that's the bar. And and so I think then you could just say, you know, I realize this might not seem like a very big deal to you, but the word close just kind of brings up a lot of difficult feelings for me. And so, you know, I share your sense. I think it's great. My sister and I can get along. I wish her nothing but the best. Uh, I think she's doing her best. But it, just as a favor to me, if you wouldn't mind not using the word close, it would mean a lot to me just because it, it dredges up, you know, painful feelings and I'd rather not. Maybe that feels a little bit too much like, couching what you want um, around your aunt's feelings. And so if that feels too apologetic, as, as if you're saying like, I'm sorry, I know I'm being so weird, but if you could just accommodate me, I'd really appreciate it. Feel free to put it in stronger terms. I also really think it would be fine if you were to say to your aunt, I love you so much. I don't want to have a huge fight about this, but I have told you a couple of times that this word is difficult for me. And we don't have to have the exact same understanding of my relationship with my sister. I can appreciate that we have different perspectives. And I'm not asking you to see things from my point of view. But I will just tell you that hearing you call us close repeatedly just kind of reminds me of something that's painful. And I would rather that you didn't. And now that you know it bothers me, I really hope you'll stop. I, I think that's reasonable too and robust and maybe less craven than the sort of first version I offered, which was a little bit like, sorry, I'm so weird. And I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I think there's also the nice possibility that it could actually bring her even closer to her aunt and deepen their relationship if they have that conversation. 
Yeah. And I just, man, I really relate to that painful feeling of, I know she's doing this because she wants things to be better. Yeah. And she wants us to love each other more than we do. And she's desperate to like salvage something from the wreckage of our family. And that itself feels like so much pressure that I feel bad for objecting to it. it makes me feel guilty that we don't have that as a family. I really, really get why this is painful. I, you know, letter writer, you just have all of my sympathy. And I also really get Sometimes it can feel like you can reach a detente about your family, but then if somebody else says things look great, that somehow feels like, oh, I can't let that stand. Like, now it's not bearable. Now everything sucks because someone just said things look good. And it turns out I actually need people to know, like, it's like the expression about ducks, like how ducks look really serene gliding around in the water. Mm -hmm. But if you look underneath, they're like paddling furiously and it can be like you can't tell me I look serene out here on the water. I will lose my mind. Right. There's so much work going on to have this calmness above. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, I hope that can go well. Again, if you decide to just sort of let it go, that would make sense to me. If you decide to have a more serious conversation with your aunt about it, that would make sense to me too. And I just really, really hope that you're able to find some sort of peacefulness around it, whatever that looks like for you. Because it, it does seem like all of your peace and happiness now in life have been really, really hard fought and hard won. And I hope a minimum of family struggles for you in the future. Do you have any sort of more general thoughts before we leave our audience about like, just ways that you think might be useful for people when they're dealing with siblings in particular. Again, there's not ever going to be a piece of advice that applies to everyone at all times, but something that you think would be useful for people to bear in mind when they're thinking about relationships with adult siblings. I saw something once that's like, you know, the family you have and the family you choose. Mm -hmm. So I think about that a lot of, you know, me and my siblings, we're all very different. And, you know, we love each other because we're family, but I think it's okay to find the relationship that's right for you. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a great community of friends out here in San Francisco that I think of as as family now, and that's the family that I choose. It doesn't mean that I don't I don't love my family that I that I was born with any differently, but um, I can have different relationships, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be the the relationship that my friend has with her sister. I can have mine that's different. And and I think that's that's the biggest thing is giving ourselves permission to have the relationship that works for us. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really useful. Thank you so much for that kind of last moment uh, of, of wisdom before we send everyone back out into the day. And thank you so much for taking time to answer these questions with me. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening.
And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Obviously, there's so much of what goes into what makes some crushes persistent more so than others is is a really difficult one to answer. But I think that that sort of idea of I feel like this crush has legs in the implication is that in ways that others haven't, I think, because I wasn't allowed to have sex with him, which again, I just I find really charming. Like, I think letter writer, you're just dealing with like a really intense crush and you really want to do something, all of which is understandable, I think useful in terms of how you talk about this with your partner. And I don't want you to feel any type of way about it. But I think that then follow up kind of justification of like, if I were allowed to have sex with him, then I would get over the crush and then we wouldn't have a problem. Again, I I understand it. I get it. I don't think it's about getting rid of this feeling like sex diffuses crushes. Oftentimes, if anything, it it gives them strength. It emboldens them. Then all of a sudden, now there's this person I have a crush on and I just had great sex with them. Now I think they hung the moon. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.